0: Hey everybody, this is Dan Del Fiorentino, the music historian here at NAM. Can you believe five years ago we started our podcast based on the oral history interviews here at NAM, and that is the Music History Project. To celebrate this anniversary, we're digging back in the archives and bringing to you our very first episode. Going back to July 6, 2017, here is part one of a two parter. All about the record company in Memphis, Tennessee that established the careers of people like Elvis Presley, Jerry Lee Lewis, Johnny Cash, and so many others. Here is Sun Records, Part 1.
1: Welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Elizabeth Dale.
0: And Dan Del Fiorentino. And Mike Mullins.
1: If you want to check out any of our content or any of the other interviews that aren't featured, please check out our website at www. NAM.org slash library. So, we're new to this game, so it's a little awkward for us at first. But uh, we're going to sit down today and we're going to chat about Sun Records and the history of Sun Records. And s- we're going to hear some interviews that Dan has captured over the years with guys who were at Sun, worked with Sam Phillips. And uh, he did that through the NAM Oral History Program, which is a huge collection that I think Dan is the best one to tell us about.
0: Well, thank you. This is exciting because this gives us an opportunity, finally at last, to showcase the depth of this collection that uh, originally started because of the uh, the NAM board got together um, in the late 1990s and said we really should be capturing the history of our industry, and that's the music products industry all around the globe. And so I was lucky enough to get the gig and have been... Uh, in my favorite position and dream job ever since. And uh, we've captured over 3,000 interviews as of uh, 2016 and uh, we continue to focus on recording those people who lived in our industry and changed it. Pioneers, people like uh, music store owners and those working in um, music manufacturing like Fender and Steinway, as well as music educators. And along the way, we've been able to put together these little pieces of the puzzle that uh, tell a larger story, um, but can be very specific. So today, it's exciting to assemble some of the interviews that talked about Sun Records there in Memphis, Tennessee, and why that was an important recording studio and some of the amazing things that were done there. So I'm really very grateful to Michael and Elizabeth for uh, sort of putting the flame underneath me to actually do something about uh, this great collection and uh, utilize the media of this podcast. So I'm very hopeful that uh, this will be the first chapter of many.
1: Yeah, so if you want to check out any of the interviews from uh, some of the guys we look here today or anyone else out of the 3,000 plus we have, check out our website. It's nam, N-A-M-M, dot org slash library, and you'll find the whole collection there. So uh, I guess we can get started then. Exciting. Where are we starting? So
2: our first clip that we have here is Matt Ross Am I pronouncing that correctly?
1: Yeah, as far as I know, Dan would probably yes. know best. Yeah. Alrighty. And so, uh, what's uh, I guess before we hear from him, Dan, what's you interviewed Matt a while ago, a couple years ago, I think. Uh, yeah, what, the
0: Asheville NAM show.
1: Yeah. So, what's his background? How's he connected to Sun?
0: Well, he actually is a recording engineer, and he w- worked at Sun uh, at the time. It was um, still really focusing on uh, special tours and uh, then he uh, got into the element of recording there when they expanded and brought back live recordings uh, to the studio just a couple of years ago, I understand.
1: So uh, I think Matt in this clip is going to talk about what it was like to be at Sun, kind of the history of the studio, what the space was built like, really trying to give us a visual if you've never been able to see it. So let's hear from Matt.
3: Just being from Memphis, you know, the history music history of not only the blues guys like bb king and ike turner and Helen wolf mm-hmm. memphis jug band but then you got sun with sam phillips and elvis and carl jerry lee roy Orbison, Johnny Cash then people like willie mitchell who's the hero who did al green Otis clay and peebles and then you get in the sixties i could go on forever with ardent with big star and zz top and zeppelin three and then you get into the kind of the current mode but um, all that stuff is kind of like just warped, warped me into who I am today. Right. I mean, stacks and high. <laughs> oh yeah, so um, I forgot. Uh. I didn't even mention stacks, but and there's American Studios. And a lot American of people don't know American, but that's where the most hits in Memphis were ever cut. And then there's little-known labels like Gold Wax, which has got some of the most fantastic country soul music ever. That's where uh, um, Dark and Street came out on that. And then, of course, Muscle Shoals is not far. Nashville's not far. So um, all that stuff just kind of took over me at a young age. and uh, and that's how it all happened.
0: That's fantastic. Let's talk about Sun a little bit. What was it like in there?
3: Well Sun is um, you know it's the birthplace of rock and roll. Um, It's unchanged from the 50s which is pretty amazing and uh, I love it because I'm a big um, proponent of people in a room together and feeding off each other and really not having a plan. Uh, Sam Said they never went in there knowing what they were going to do. You know, they just came in there, and he said, "Pull it out of their assholes." But, <laughs> uh, but, son, to me is is the essence of that. It's one room. There's no boosts. Uh, the, the bleed in the control of uh, the studio is so bad it goes in the control room. So you're kind of hearing stuff through the speakers and through the wall. And it's by no means the most perfect recording situation, but that's what's great about it. And the, the room just is alive. And it. Um, so I spent 11 years there. And um, it really helped me become a great engineer about, A, knowing how to – I tell everyone it's a, it, this is a people industry, you know. Um, it, the technical side is like 20% of it, and 80% of it is just being a, a good person and, and knowing how to talk to people and comfort people and stuff. Mm. And at Sun, everyone's coming there to make their dreams come true, and they're freaking out. I mean, it's hard to go in there and try and play your song when Johnny Cash is looking at you, and you know Elvis cutting there and stuff. So a big part of it was just getting people to calm down and open up and relax Mm. in the session. And then you got to know how to record a whole band live in a room with no separation and try and get a great vocal take and make everyone hear each other without headphones and stuff. So it really kind of shaped. That was a big part of my um, learning was, was trying to learn that room and figure out how to make it work. You know, Sam did it with four microphones. So... Uh, I, I I could do way more but I started taking Mike away from myself and I, I bought all the same equipment he would have used. so we went live to monotape mm. and I had a little late I could cut you a 45 when you were done and try and make a whole band work with four microphones it can be pretty tough but it can be exhilarating too because you play the the console like an instrument you know so it's, a, it's cool to have everyone on the same wavelength and, and uh, pressure
1: That was a lot of information. A lot of names came out of there. So, uh, Dan, those names all coming out of Sun, some big ones. It's
0: amazing. It really is, uh, as he said, sort of the birthplace of rock and roll. And I think one of the things that's most amazing to me is the role that that recording studio plays. It's uh, located in Memphis, Tennessee, and best known for, of course, cutting Elvis Presley's first recordings Uh, And then there was a string of hit records, as he mentioned, Jerry Lee Lewis, um, Carl Perkins, Johnny Cash, so many others. But to back up and to really understand why that was important, I think it might be fun to talk a little bit about Sam Phillips, his background, and how that studio began. Because to me, the uniqueness was that Sam Phillips was not afraid of recording African-American artists as a as a white record st- um, label owner and more importantly or maybe equally importantly he wasn't afraid to record a white person singing African-American music which of course became Elvis and the whole rockabilly movement after that and in the South, at that time, that was sort of a big deal. I mean, we got to remember, this is around the time of Emmett Till. Uh, I think he was murdered in August of 1955, so this is a few years even before that. This is way before Rosa Parks. So this was at a time in the South where it was very difficult to mingle the two um ethnic backgrounds and blend them together in music. It was very difficult for even white radio stations to play African-American music at that time.
1: And we have uh, some clips that discuss that, um, that we're going to get to in just a little bit as well, that we can dive into more about that that aspect of Sam and how he was kind of a pioneer in that, that uh, area. Uh, the other thing I found interesting about Matt's clip is they talked a lot about... A, it's a unique recording space. I mean, as someone who's never been in a recording studio, maybe both of you guys know better than me, is it still completely different than what you'd see in a modern studio?
0: Absolutely. I think the funny thing that Matt brings up is how unprofessional, if I can use that word, uh, it is on today's standards. We have to remember that that was 60 years ago when it was first built. So A lot of the recording studios now take advantage of acoustic measurements and dynamics and all the studies that people have done, uh, the wall treatments. All of these products that have been developed have been developed in a way to make the most out of whatever space is available. Back then, it didn't matter. He just had an open room. This is some place that he rented, Sam we're talking about. And put some equipment in and said, okay, here's my studio. He didn't treat the walls. He didn't treat the ceilings. He didn't do anything to it. And that's why there was a lot of bleed that Matt was referring to.
2: And it's pretty incredible, the the records that came out of there. Um, you know, just a, a studio that wasn't even really a studio. It was just, you know, four walls, four mics, and and the gold that came out of there was just incredible. And and following up on, on who Sam was... Um, we have a clip here from W.S. Holland uh, describing who Sam was.
1: Yeah, so, and for those of you who don't know, W.S. Holland was uh, a really great drummer and played with Johnny Cash for quite a bit of his career. And uh, was it Carl Perkins as well? Who else did he play Correct. with? Yeah, yeah. He,
0: he, was on the, he was a drummer for Blue Suede Shoes, a very famous
4: Carl Perkins tune.
1: Yeah, and so he's a super nice guy, so we're going to hear from him next.
4: Sam Phillips was probably one of the most usual, unusual, characters that I was ever around. Uh, he might not have been the, the number one unusual character because I was around so many. But the one thing that he knew, a, a lot of people call Sam even now and, and back then a record producer. and uh, But in, in, in my view, he, he really wasn't a record producer. He had a record company. And people found him, like Elvis found him, Carl found him, John found him, all the guys. And they go in the studio, and Sam was smart enough to just let us do what we could do. I, I don't, I don't ever remember him telling anybody that's singing or playing an instrument uh, how to play it. He he knew enough that he was hearing something that nobody had ever heard before mm-hmm. so he just let it happen and i to me he he just he had a, a a special mind about him to listen to something and realize nobody had ever heard it before so he let it happen if it probably if if you think about it We'll just say he if he had been a person that had gone to to a college or some kind of school to learn record producing, you know, like a lot of producers do, to go in the studio, well no, you gotta do this, that don't work, you, it wouldn't have happened. He it just he could hear it and realize that it was something new. And I kinda kidded him later though. <clears throat> After we did the Million Dollar Quartet session. See, nobody thought anything about that that night.
0: Very interesting. What's cool is um, a little bit of background on on Sam. He was born in uh, Florence, Alabama, which is the same place that uh, Rick Hall, who later formed the very famous Muscle Shoals-based recording studio called Fame, was also born. Uh, he grew up uh, picking cotton and uh, got a job as a disc jockey in uh, Florence, Alabama before uh, moving to Memphis. And in um, January of 1950, he opened uh, the Memphis Recording Service. And a few years later, that uh, same recording studio, of course, uh, is where the Sun Record label uh, came from. So he was recording um artists for other labels before sun which uh, a lot of people may not know Uh, people like helen wolf and uh, bb king i know at least a couple of uh, helen wolf songs uh, were um, released on chess records up in uh, chicago um, recorded there in memphis so um, sam was uh, forging these relationships with other labels and realized wait a minute i can form my own label and uh, maybe keep a little coin in my pocket Uh, which was a smart move. And, uh, of course, one of the first songs uh, that was uh, noted in uh, March of 1950, recorded there in Memphis uh, Recording Studio, was uh, Rocket 88, considered by many people to be the first rock and roll song. So he was definitely there at the right time. Uh, He had the equipment and the know-how, and uh, most importantly, I think he had the sensibility to... um, find the talent and allow the talent to do as ws just said what they do
1: yeah which brings us to uh our next great topic probably your favorite dan uh we're going to talk about the king
0: hey (laughs) i know a little something about him just
1: a little bit about elvis so um we uh we find out very quickly that elvis gets signed and cuts his first record on sun way to go uh sam good find i guess
0: (laughs) well again i think going back to what uh ws just told us um The artist basically found Sam. So the story goes that Elvis was interested in hearing what his voice would sound like on the record. So he saved his money and went in uh, the studio on July eighteenth, 1953 and cut a song called My Happiness, which for many years people were told uh, he recorded that for his mother and gave it to his mother for her birthday, which was the following month. Uh, which, of course, could be very true. But I also think a lot of this uh, had to do with Elvis being interested in saying, wait a minute, what would I sound like on record? <laughs> so uh, kind of a one-two punch. And uh, as the story goes, uh, Marion, who is the secretary there and also in charge of helping with the recordings uh, with Sam, um, was there when Elvis came in, Sam was, I guess, on break, and she leaned over and recorded on a backup tape uh, Elvis recording... My Happiness, which you don't normally do. Tape was very expensive, but uh, she wanted to play it back for Sam because she heard something different.
1: Right. Man, she 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 should get a lot of that credit there, right?
0: Absolutely.
1: Um, so we're going to hear from a couple people about Elvis and his process of getting discovered, I guess you could say, at Sun by Sam and Marion then in turn. Uh, so our first up is Carl Mann. Do you want to give us a little background on him?
0: Sure. Um, Carl Mann was uh, born in the... Uh, rural Tennessee. He, um, he grew up in a, uh, a family where both of his parents were in the lumber business. Uh, it was, uh, 1942, I believe he was born. And, um, Started singing and playing in church, as many of the other folks that we're going to be talking about today did. And uh, his greatest claim to fame came uh, a few years after Elvis uh, in 1959 when he recorded his version of Mona Lisa. But uh, here is a very interesting uh, interview with Carl Mann talking about uh, about the early days.
5: Then I met W.S. Holland, uh, who was with Carl Perkins at the time. played He played drums for Carl Perkins, and he. He became interested in in my singing and uh, came out to listen to me one night and and we got together and he said uh, you know that maybe he he had some influence over at Son. He might be able to get me a record deal over there because I had already been to Son several times with tapes, audition tapes, you know, and they'd say, well, just leave the tape, we'll listen to it, get back with you. And uh, that didn't work, you know. Uh, <laughs> uh, I don't know if they ever listened to them or not, because when I got down there, they had a whole store back there full of tapes. <laughs> I guess I guess uh, there was a lot of kids starting out, you know, uh, that was sending them tapes and trying to get on Sun Records, you know, after Elvis, man, that was, that was the thing, you know. <laughs> Elvis, when I heard Elvis Dewey Phillips played him on w h b q and i thought man this is this is this guy's something you know uh real different, you know and uh because it was such a raw sound, but yet it was great, you know, and the first time I heard him play that's all right mama man i I just uh, it just uh, done something to me you know? <laughs> And so um, I started doing a lot of Elvis' songs. and uh, But I was still doing country, too, you know. But uh.
0: It's amazing. Um, I, I was thinking when Carl was talking there um, about a couple of things that are extremely important to remember. When I was growing up um, in the late 70s and early 80s, a big Elvis fan, I was told a couple of things. One, that the main thrust of Sam connecting with Elvis was that uh, Sam had always said to Marion and others if he could find a white artist that sounded like a black performer, he'd make a million bucks. And I don't know if that is exactly a quote, but that was sort of his concept. He was looking to expand from the African-Americans that he was recording to um, bring the music that he was hearing in Beale Street and other places around Memphis that were combining these sounds. So a lot of the white artists that we're talking about, Roy Orbison and Johnny Cash and Elvis Um, all grew up in the church and um, understood that style of music, country music and and church music, but also grew up around Memphis and, uh, let's say, the other side of the tracks and heard the blues and rhythm and blues. And when they would combine these together, really that became something unique and different. And so a lot of people, including myself, consider Sun Records to be really the birthplace of rockabilly, combining all of those sounds. And that's what Carl was talking about a little bit in that clip. And interestingly enough to me is the role that Dewey Phillips played, the DJ there in Memphis, um, who wasn't afraid to play African-American artists uh, on his show, which was called the Red, Hot, and Blue. Um, Dewey was actually related to Sam. They were uh, second cousins, I believe, or something like that. And uh, also very interested in playing... um, music that you wouldn't hear elsewhere. When, as Carl Mann just had mentioned, that Dewey was playing Elvis for the first time, almost immediately Dewey brought Elvis down to the radio station and interviewed him live. And one of the points that he wanted to make very clear, uh, without... Saying directly, are you Caucasian, you know, to tell the audience that this is not an African-American because he is singing uh, African-American songs and um, very bluesy and and rhythm and blues. Uh, He asked Elvis, um, what school do you go to? And Hume's High at the time, of course, segregation and all of that, it was an all-white school. So that spoke volumes to the audience of who this kid Elvis was.
1: And one thing I find interesting that I, you know, want to see what you guys think is, uh, you know, you mentioned that if it weren't for the country background of the region, the studio being in Memphis, um, the gospel influence and everything like that, do you think if that, if Sun Records was placed anywhere else in the nation, the Northeast or the West Coast or anything like that, do you think the same sounds would have come out?
2: I think it would have been totally different. I think where it was located had a a huge, um, it played a huge part in it. Um, if it was more northern or if it was on the east or the, or if it was like California coast or anything like that, I feel like it would have been totally different and the people that would have went in there would have um, done different things. And I think the whole whole aspect of the studio would have been different too. I don't think they would have been so relaxed with how they recorded everything. I think they would have gone for all of the high-tech stuff and, and the the scientific ways of recording, if you can call
0: it that. Absolutely. I agree with you, Michael. I think it's interesting also that um, we think about some of the storied studios. They each have their own little niche, like Stax Records there in Memphis had a slanted floor. It used to be a a movie theater, and a lot of people thought that that was sort of the mystique of it. You know, there was somehow acoustically that was different. And, of course, Motown uh, had its own, very polished songs, brand new songs recorded by several of the artists that uh, Barry Gordy and those in uh, that whole system were um, grooming to be big stars like the Supremes and the Temptations, and they had their own little niche. Uh, of course, out in uh, on the West Coast, there was uh, Gold Star Records that had an echo chamber that made was made famous by the Beach Boys and Pet Sounds and uh, Phil Spector and the Wallace Sound. So all of these sort of storied studios have a little bit of a niche sort of um, physically that you could point to and say, well, maybe that was this, maybe that was part of the sound. But as you said, Michael, I think you are absolutely right. It wasn't necessarily, that wasn't necessarily part of Sun Records. I think a lot of it had to do with its location and the people that it attracted.
1: The most amazing part about all that is Dan can recite all those dates and names without any notes in front of him. So <laughs> um. I
0: am an obsessed Elvis fan.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Just slightly. Uh, well, speaking of Elvis, getting us back on track, uh, how about we listen to one of your best buddies?
0: Well, Scotty Moore became my friend. And I'm very, very honored to say that. Uh, believe me, it's a very humbling thing. When I was a kid growing up, I had my um, uncle's 45 of Elvis singing Shake, Rattle, and Roll. And I thought, who are those musicians on there? I mean, almost immediately, of course, I was taken by Elvis's voice, but I really wanted to know who else was in the band. And I had to go down to a place called a library physically. I know this is kind of scary What's a library? Yeah, thank you. <laughs> and I I brought the forty five with me, and I asked a reference librarian, "Who's on this? Who's the guitar player? Who's the drummer?" And that's the first time I heard the name Scotty Moore playing the uh, the Gibson. What was interesting to me is I just grew up with that name. So having a job at NAM in the early two thousands and getting to meet and get to know Scotty was just a complete honor. And the, the main thing I wanted to say about Scotty that you will probably hear in his voice as you uh, hear part of this interview is that he's a humble guy. He was just kind of a country bumpkin. You know, he, was, he always t- said that when they first started recording, they were amateurs. They didn't know what they were doing. They were just a bunch of kids. And um, they grew up very quickly, of course. Um, If you consider one interesting fact, um, Elvis and Scotty and and Bill Black on drums, I mean on bass, excuse me, uh, this is before the drummer, uh, July 5th, 1954, they recorded That's Alright Mama, that's the first uh, time they got together. So from July of 1954 to January of 1956 is when Elvis recorded Heartbreak Hotel on RCA. And of course, that was the beginning of his stardom and these Huge gold records, so not a whole lot of time in between for these amateurs to all of a sudden become big stars and get used to screaming girls and television cameras and all the like. So uh, it's a very interesting transition for all of them. But in the end, I think Scotty remained who he always was. He didn't. He wasn't flashy. He was just a very humble kind of guy.
1: Yeah, and if you want to see that uh, again, check out our website to see the video that accompanies the audio you're about to hear, and you can see that clip at nam.org slash library. That's n a m dot org slash library. So here's Scotty.
0: Do you remember the first time you uh, met Elvis?
1: Yeah. Um,
6: this is July. It was the July 4th, uh, 48 years ago. Hmm. Uh, this, this past July, uh, the last 4th of July, around two o'clock in the afternoon, he came over to my house.
0: Did you know he was going? Forty-eight years, my lord. You're <laughs> wait, you're too young for that. <laughs> Is this a story that Sam set you up, that you were going to get together?
6: Or? Uh, well, there's been so many variations of it. It's uh, <laughs> uh, the, the group I was talking about earlier, the uh, Starlight Wranglers, uh, See so uh, when I put that group together, and then... Uh, uh, and then I got a little radio show for us. Uh, then I started, then I heard about the, this studio, this guy that had a studio and you could go in and make your own record, mm. or uh, he was uh, doing some records for some other people, for other labels. And uh, so I went to see, and it, it, this was Sam, it was Memphis Recording Service. And the Sun records was a, just a side thing. He was trying to, uh, he was trying to land some kind of, you know, get a hit in which way. And he had sense enough to know what he was doing. He was cutting R and B stuff for uh, uh, mainly chess records in Chicago, I think. And uh, so anyway, I went to see him, and he said, "Yeah, bring the band in," because he was. He was dabbling around in uh, country music also, and uh, I uh, we went in and uh, played several things for him, and he liked. It. He said he got a good group, good tight. Uh, he said, but do you have any any original material? Nope. He said, well, I really don't see any, you know, percentage in recording other people's material, and uh, see if you get some. Uh, Get some original material. Come back and see me. Well, I went out and wrote two songs, and then gave Point uh, extra. The singer part of it, and uh, and my oldest brother part of it because he could read music and he wrote the lead sheet so we could copyright the darn thing. I mean, I was really business wise back then. <laughs> That's Anxiousness can get you in trouble <laughs> if you're not careful. But anyway, I got two songs and we went back and uh, told Sam, I got a couple of songs, and he said, okay, come in, we'll listen again. Uh, he liked both songs and uh, he cut cut the record.
0: Hmm. What was the
6: song? Uh, one song was uh, My Kind of Carrying On and uh, 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 gosh, my mind went blank, what is the other side? Uh. Can't remember out of fan.
0: But you were pretty happy with it.
6: Well, I was didn't uh, I, I didn't have sense enough to know what was a hit record if I heard it, you know. <laughs> uh, I, what I was looking for is that okay. I got this little radio show now. If I got a record, I could get it played on the radio some, and get more, hopefully more weekend gigs because all the band was had daytime jobs, you know, and. Uh,
0: so, at the time of that recording, if you can recall, did you have aspirations of being a professional musician
6: uh, yes and no i mean I, I what all I wanted was to have a band i didn't want to, i couldn't sing i didn't i just wanted to, i wanted to have a band uh and wanted to play now I hadn't really got that far into it what is this gonna be a seven day a week you know or one day a week or what? As long as I could play some, it's just like a, like an itch you had to scratch, you know. And uh, yeah. so anyway, that the the record that he put out, we well, uh, probably sold twelve, I guess, maybe. Uh, I don't know if he even gave any away or not, <laughs> but <laughs> 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 might have might have pressed twenty five if he could. <laughs> uh, but from this this uh, experience, Sam and I became good friends. And there was a restaurant next door to the studio. Now, I, every, everywhere I read, I keep reading, Scotty hanging around Sun Studio. I didn't hang around Sun Studio. I would go down if Sam wasn't uh, uh, working. We would go. I wouldn't even go in the studio. I'd go in the front office part and see if he was if he was working. If he was working, I'd go on. And if, and if he wasn't, well, I'd wave at him or something. We'd go next door. <clears throat> and have coffee and just chit chat for thirty four to five minutes. That was my hanging around. Was at the restaurant really, <laughs> and, uh, and then that's through him and uh, having coffee over there. And his secretary is actually Marion. Is one that actually one day she said, uh, "What about? We were just talking about the business in general. Did you hear such and such a record? Uh, how'd you like the sound on this?" And uh, uh, you, know, just, you know, neither one of us. <clears throat> I'm looking to get out of out of work, I guess, and been the back of my mind. And he's looking for a a hit, you know, because he's got a dad. He he's got a job at uh, at W uh, W R E C radio. So he was engineering down there mm. on the side. And this he started his studio uh, as a separate. Just hoping to get something going there, which he did, and uh,
0: so she was actually part of
6: see Alice had been in there and and made this record for his uh, mother about a year prior to when I was there for her birthday uh and uh she when we was having coffee she uh asked him if he remembered she had kept his address and I think it made had it got him to listen to the tape and such. Years years went by, and I finally found out that he had been back in again. Actually, Sam had called him again. We were having coffee one day, and uh, Marion, Sam's uh, secretary, had joined us. And uh, she brought up uh, Elvis's name. Asked Sam, said, to, "Said, what do you think about the what well, was in the, in about a year ago?" Said. Uh, and Sam's kind of uh, He didn't really say anything. He just got nodded his head. And uh, so old instigator, me, uh, then over the next couple of weeks, uh, every time I'd see him go by, uh, I said, you think about that guy? Did you call him yet or anything? And uh, so finally, after a, a couple of weeks, well, again, Marion was... Having coffee with us, and uh, he turned to her, and just kind of uh, said, "Mary, if you got the got his phone number in the file," and she said, "Oh yeah. I said, well, <laughs> go get it and, uh, and bring it back. And he turned to me and said, "Give it to Scotty," and said, "Scotty, if you call a guy and get him to come over to your house and see what you think about him," and it was it, it, that instant. It was kind of like, you know, just Quit bugging me, but (laughs) and I probably was, you know. uh, uh, So she, anyway, she went and got the telephone number, and I, uh, when I got this was on a Saturday, and when I got home that afternoon, I called, and uh, he wasn't home, but talked to his mother, and told her I was uh, uh, I'm I'm working with. Sam Phillips at Sun Records. Uh, uh, see, I still didn't know that he had actually been in there. Beside, again, besides oh. that, uh, this second call came out in years, and neither Sam nor Elvis had ever mentioned that feat over the years. Is that right? Yeah, and I don't know why. Huh. Uh, but uh, anyway, I called him. Uh, he called me and I asked him, uh, again, told him I was kind of looking for talent and stuff for Sun Records, would he be interested in. And uh, he said, yeah, I guess so. So I got him to come over to my house on Sunday, which was the 4th of July.
4: Hmm.
6: And uh, he came over and uh, we spent a couple of hours, he sang, it seemed like he knew every song in the world. He didn't know the chords to him, He'd play along and when he got to where he didn't know it he'd just quit playing, keep saying, come back and start playing again. Uh, had had a, had a uh, I think he had a sponge for a brain for, for lyrics just, you know, just he knew them. And uh, Bill Black lived up the street uh, a few doors. Uh, he came down and, and listened a little bit. He didn't, his bass was at my house, but he never did, we didn't play and He just came in and listened a few minutes and left.
0: You had played with him before.
6: Well, he was part of the Star Wranglers band. Oh, okay. So we were... Uh, Elvis left, and uh, I called Sam, and uh, I told him, I said, uh, you know, I said, the boy sings, you know, good, he's young, uh, seems like he knows every song, but I'd learned my lesson. I said, but he doesn't have any original material now. You know, and uh, uh, Sam said, "Well, did will uh, I tell you what? Said, just you and Bill come come in tomorrow night, studio." Now he said, "I'll call him, call Elvis at home, and ask him to come in." And uh, I, I, I after I thought about it later, the reason he called him and said come in, I gave it uh, legitimacy. You know that it would, I wouldn't. You know, just uh, wasting time or anything. But uh, he asked. Said, "Just you and Bill come in." Said, "Don't bring the whole band." Said, "All I want is just to uh, see what he sounds like with a little music with him." And uh, uh, the uh, this was his. This even was the real audition. I did a pre-audition, and then when we went in on the Monday night, that was the audition. Then the first, well, actually the, the first side of the first record came out of the audition. We didn't go in to cut a record, you just, just fell into it. Is that right? Yeah.
0: But you did full takes as if it were, right?
6: On some other stuff, mm-hmm. yeah. And it, I'll tell you a little side note there that um, Sam kept some of those uh Harbor Lights was one where we would just try Blue Moon. That was a pre pre cut that night. Uh there's two, three others. And he kept kept some of those. Well ever from then on, every time we, we did a new record, we go in we actually worked it the same way. We went in and uh uh well you think of anything today we could try? <laughs> no, did you? Uh how about this? Uh, let's try, you know, we'd go through these things. Sam would put them on tape. We'd listen to them. No, that's not, I think. We thought we had a style so you know. We had to find this thing at work. But he didn't keep any of this later stuff. Really? He, well, tape was, you know, he wasn't working on a shoestring. And tape cost money. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's always been a mystery to me why he kept those first few things and then later on, didn't.
0: That is very good. Uh,
6: not even any outtakes or anything. You don't find any outtakes. There's a couple of uh, a couple of uh, a breakdown things he found later after he sold everything to uh, RCA. But in general, there was not because he back up would do it again.
0: Do you recall any of those songs that just never got the light of day?
6: <sighs> not really. We tried a little bit of everything. Mm-hmm. And I'm, you may have heard, read, and those things. Those people say, "Well, didn't y'all cut a thing, a, a bluegrass thing called Uncle Pen?" And we may have run it. We may have tried it, but it. Uh, and uh, I don't remember so many, many, many things we tried. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were doing some things out on. We had two, two songs, one record, man. We was gonna started doing shows. We had to work up something that would at least do 15 minutes. I mean, <laughs>
0: yeah, to put a show together quick.
6: Yeah, <laughs> uh, something, that, and something that would fit three people the way we were playing it. And uh, <laughs> gosh, the only group we knew that uh, uh, back then that would was like uh, Bill Carlisle. I don't know if you ever heard the Carlisles. He did it was. Did um, comedy type songs, but it was like a three-piece uh, group, mm. three or four, very small. But uh, we did some Chuck Berry stuff on the road. Some of that got recorded later from different uh, angles. Uh, Maybelline, and things like that. Maybelline, yeah. Uh, we, uh, uh, Teresa Brewer, uh, Tweedly D. These were things that we were just going down the highway and hear something say as so we get to where we're going, we'll try that. See if we can work something out of that. You know, just. Uh.
1: I can't even imagine pre auditioning Elvis and then not shouting it from the rooftops afterwards. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, it's interesting. Uh, Scotty was talking about the Starlight Wranglers, uh, which was a band that he put together, and they did record very country type of music on Sun uh, before he connected with Elvis, and Billy Black is on the base. Uh, Just a little shout out, uh, Billy was born in 1926, passed away in 1965, Um, was a critical part of the trio. They called themselves the Blue Moon Boys uh, when they toured around. I'm looking at a picture of them now. And those were the early days that Scotty was talking about. But it's interesting, if you ever have the chance to listen to the Starlight Wrangler's recordings on Sun, what you will find, uh, as I discovered, is Scotty's unique sound was even on those country tunes. And it wasn't just the ES-335 Gibson that he was playing, although that is a unique sounding instrument. It was the way Scotty played that has been emulated by many uh, and influenced by even more Uh, The Beatles talked about it. Uh, Brian Setzer recently told us about that, his influence of of Scotty's sound. So um, it's really cool to hear that even before Elvis, he had already developed a sound. He just sort of um, honed it into this now rockabilly style that Elvis was all about. So uh, a very interesting early days of rock and roll right there.
1: And we recently lost Scotty Moore, right, in the last year or so?
0: Yeah, he passed away on June the 28th of nineteen or, uh, 2016, and um, it was um, after some illness, so uh, not a shock to some of us, but uh, it's very difficult to, to think about it without him. I, I love getting phone calls from Scotty and just talking. Uh, he was a really great guy. Uh, my favorite story about Scotty, i love to share with you, is the first time I went to his house, which by the way was on the street called Blueberry Hill, which I thought was great. Um, really up in the hills there uh, above Nashville. It took me forever. I felt like I was driving to an, another country. Um, and when I finally got out of my car, he met me, uh, came out to the porch. And I said, Scotty, where is the next neighbor? And he said, oh, like three miles away. And I said, why are you in the middle of nowhere? And he just had this cute little sigh and said, no screaming girls.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I guess he dealt with that enough in his life, right? (laughs) Traumatized from that moment. (laughs) I venture to say most men would probably not feel the same, but. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. Well, we're going to talk a little bit more about Elvis uh, a little bit later. But uh, we're going to kind of circle back around to a concept you brought up earlier, Dan, and that's uh, Sam Phillips and Son recording before Elvis and kind of their roots in giving uh, African-Americans a chance to record, which wasn't really existent before him. Um, So who are we going to hear from next, Mike? Uh, So first we're going to hear
2: from Carl Mann, actually.
1: Yeah, which we heard from him earlier, so no bio needed.
2: Right. And this time we're going to hear him talk about Carl Perkins and Elvis' influence on Sun, and also Sam recording black artists.
5: Carl uh, is known as the rockabilly king, but I think Elvis was, you know, his stuff was rockabilly, you know, when he first came out, because he was doing bluegrass rock, you know, and, and and then he was doing old blues stuff. A lot of that stuff he did was... Uh, Stuff that some of the black artists had done on Sun, you know. Sam recorded a lot of black artists before he ever got Elvis. You know, I'm sure you guys know that, but he had BB King, uh, Ike Turner, uh, Rufus Thomas, and, and and a lot of the black black artists. In fact, I think he was about the only uh, studio in in Memphis at the time that recorded, it gave the Bacharists a chance, you know, to record the blues and, and stuff that they did, you know. Of course, that was blues capital of the world, I guess, Memphis Blues or New Orleans. So, it all <clears throat> came together, you know, as a new American music, you know, new style of American music. It took the public a while to accept, it, accept that you know, with uh, with Elvis, but... Uh,
0: so that's uh, Carl Mann talking a little bit about the uh, early days of the Memphis Recording Service that was uh, established in 1950 by Sam Phillips and, of course, became the same location of Sun Records a few years later. And some of the early recordings uh, of African American blues artists that Sam went around uh, the Beale Street and other places it started with a guy whose nickname was originally the Beale Street Blues Boy, later cut down to BB, and that was BB King. Howlin' Wolf, Roscoe Gordon, Rufus Thomas, Little Milton. And two major influences on Elvis, uh, Little Milton and Junior Parker, along with the uh, the great harp player, uh, mouth harp, I'm talking about the harmonica, James Cotton, <laughs> <laughs> uh, all recorded there at the uh, Memphis Recording Studios.
1: Yeah, and I think one thing we have to remember is, you know, at the time, the country was in turmoil, like you, you mentioned, you know, the civil rights movement was getting ready to get in full swing and there was a whole bunch of division especially in the south and so these guys probably would have never had the opportunity to record um let alone record for what was going to become such a such a big name studio um so to kind of comment on that a little bit and the difference between rockabilly versus rhythm and blues is a uh, new voice uh sonny burgess so dan what can you tell us about sonny
0: he is known as the wild man of rockabilly and um uh, as of the time of this taping in uh, 2017, he is still on the road with his band, many of which we were able to interview for the NAM Oral History Program several years ago. Uh, Sonny is a uh, very talented individual who both uh, wrote and recorded his own songs along with some others, and really, I think, uh, became sort of the quintessential rockabilly artist, uh, certainly, of the uh, late 1950s and continues to promote that style of music.
1: Yeah, I think he's really big on the festival circuit out in Europe, so if you ever get lucky enough to get out there and see him, definitely check it out.
2: Yeah, so now we're gonna uh, jump to a clip of him uh, talking about rockabilly versus rhythm and blues.
0: There never seemed to be too much of a division between um, black and white artists, and and yet so many of the guys who play rockabilly or white, and Sam had guys in his studio who were both. Did you ever... Yeah. What, what, well, what
7: i never you? seen a black rockabilly. Yeah. Yeah, me
0: neither. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> because you but, would call it rhythm and blues. If it yeah, it's rhythm and right? blues yeah. or,
7: or race music, they used to call it, but uh, rhythm and blues what we called it back in. Uh, that's true. The rockabilly, I, I don't like the term, really. but. If that's what they want to call us, that's fine with me. You so uh, we'll be rockin', but we, like Bob said, we were rock and rollers, man. Rock and roll. We were dying the wool rockin' rollers. We wanted, we wanted to play as loud as we could. We played as loud as we could, except your speaker was a little 12-inch. You had two 12-inch speakers, deal about this tall and about that wide, and you could set the 25-watt bogan amp in the bottom of it fast together and you can carry it in, your, in one hand. That was the PA set, no monitors. We had two, maybe, if we were lucky, we had two or three microphones. And But we played as loud as we could with what we had. If we'd have played that equipment like we had nowadays, of course, we'd played, man, we'd have blown the walls out. <laughs> but now I'm talking about the black rockabilly. I always considered the guys like Elvis when he started. That's what I call true rockabilly. It was a three-piece... Guys, and then maybe they added drums to it later on. But the you know the bass, the rhythm guitar, and the guitar, and then the drums. That's what I call true rockabilly. Uh, When you add more, see, we had a six-piece band, which is what we've got now. We got a fiddle, sax player, and uh, now. But uh, back then we had the trumpet, two basses, upright bass, and a electric bass, thanks to John Array. That was unheard of back then. Mm. And um, Billy Riley was the only one other one back then that had the the big band. He came on a little bit after us on Sun.
1: So he just kind of briefly mentions the difference between, uh, and so do you, Dan, on the interview, between rockabilly and then rhythm and blues. So what would be, I guess, your guys' two thoughts on that? Like, why is it that if it's rockabilly it's all white people. And if it's if it's rhythm and blues, it's usually all black artists. Why not the crossover?
0: That's a really good question. And I have a feeling that most of it has to do with the times. You know, as you mentioned earlier, there was a hotbed of racial tension happening. Um, segregation still wasn't a word that most people wanted to talk about. And I think that That was a real clean, easy way back in those days to have both of those artists being recorded at the same studio without it becoming a major event.
1: So maybe the division was necessary to get people out there to listen to it.
0: I think you're right. At the time. And certainly people to play it, too, because you have to also remember that there were, as strange as it sounds now, there were... White radio stations. There were African American radio stations, and that's what they played. They didn't. They didn't mix. There were jukeboxes that didn't play both white artists and African American artists. And it's really strange to think that. Wait a minute. The color of the skin isn't necessarily something that you're going to hear. But that I guess goes back to the point that Dewey Phillips was trying to make when he told, uh, when he asked Elvis if he uh, went to high school at Humes High School which was segregated. And it was clear that that was a, a, a white artist. It was unclear to people listening. If somebody like Elvis is influenced by African Americans and playing rhythm and blues, what color is that guy's skin? Back then, it mattered to a lot of people, unfortunately. And so those points had to be made.
1: Yeah, which just makes you think about how much music people missed out on caring about stuff like that. I mean, great artists and great tracks. Yeah, I'm
2: sure people didn't even think to cross over to listen to it either. You know, I think it was, it it must have really just been like, oh, you either listen to that style or that style. There probably wasn't much crossing over until Elvis happened. Right.
0: And I think another sort of taboo that Elvis um, addressed was mixing not only country music and rhythm and blues together, but also his influence on gospel music and the church music. My goodness, back then, that was a big no-no to talk about (laughs) blues and Gospel music together. I mean, there were people that were thrown out of their churches, even longtime uh, parishioners, uh, if they would sing the blues. Uh, Thomas A. Dorsey is a great example of that. When he was playing the blues, he was not considered a church follower or Christ follow a follower, even though he certainly was a minister. So. Those are the kind of things that we sometimes lose sight of, and when Elvis used that influence, it was a it was a big deal.
1: Yeah. So to hear more about it, we're going to hear from a new another new voice, uh, J.M. Van Eaton. What do we know about him?
0: He was a uh, a drummer, a studio drummer that uh, did a lot of different uh, sessions there at uh, Memphis Recording Studio, and of course. Uh, released on Sun Records over the uh, the course of his career beginning in the 1950s and a very charming man another time that we had the opportunity to sit down with somebody who you really felt like wow, this is the kind of guy I want to be friends with
2: Alright, so let's, let's hear him talk about the same subject about Sam recording white and black musicians
0: Was there a lot of um, um, black musicians playing with white musicians at Sun? Or was that not no. too common? Well, it, it wasn't that it wasn't
8: something they wanted to do. It just didn't happen that much. Uh, there was a horn player that came in and played on a couple of those sessions. Uh, his, name, his last name was Ford. I can't remember his first name. Uh, I did record with a couple of uh, black artists there. They cut, they cut two artists while I was in my time frame there. And one guy was named Bill Pinkney, and Bill Pinkney was the bass singer for the Drifters. He was, and uh, and somehow Bill Justice ran across him when they were on tour somewhere, and heard him singing. and He brought him back to Sun, and we did. Uh, as far as I know, he only had one record out, but but he we did that, and I cut another with a guy named Jeb Stewart, and he was more like a Jackie Wilson type. Hmm. singer with the dancing and all that you know and he was very, very good and we did maybe two or three songs or, or maybe four or five records on him but never could get a hit record on him but that was the only couple I think after I left they maybe they brought in a black drummer who played uh, Al Jackson I think played on a few records over there at the, at the tail end of my era you know but uh, most of that <clears throat> most of that happened at Stax. Yeah, where they mixed the mixed the guys, uh, and I talked to my friend. I said, "Man, you know, I talked to some of the black artists, which I which I love." But I said, "Man, y'all ought to be thankful, Sam Phillips. You know, uh, he quit re- once Elvis came. Sam, honestly, just quit recording black artists. Prior to that, that's all he recorded. Mm-hmm. I mean, he he had uh, little Milton and guy. You know, they, it was right. unbelievable the people. To yeah, we'll yeah. but." I said, man, what he did, he'd open the door for stacks to start recording you guys. And they, you know, they, they, man, I mean, they parlayed that into a gold mine over there and cut some great, great records there, which they probably would have never gotten to do if they'd stayed at Sun, be honest about it. Hmm. I don't know if Sam would have had that vision, like the the Axtons and, uh, you know, those people. so it's it's hard to say, but I think I said, man, don't be bitter at Sam. I said he really did you a favor, you know. He got you in a studio that could help you, yeah. and Rufus Thomas was one. that was kind of bitter about it, you know. Rufus was his son, and uh, but he got over, it, you know. I mean, once you get once you go somewhere else and do good, but they had some good studios there, man. The Willie Mitchell, them over at High Records, they cut some good records. Oh yeah, yeah.
1: Must have been frustrating to get, you know, as a a black artist to have this opportunity opened up to you to record with sam and then elvis kind of stumbles along and (laughs) then he's a priority at sun and you have to find other work uh but it makes me wonder if it wasn't for that door being opened how would have things changed down the line you know obviously african-americans recording professionally and studios opening up would have would have happened i think it's the natural course of american history but how much later in what sense you know i think that's fascinating
2: Yeah, definitely a turning point in music history.
1: We're going to move forward with talking about uh, Sam Sam Phillips and playing uh, African-American music, black music at Sun and recording those. And we're going to hear from Ike Turner. And that is the Ike Turner that you probably know of. But just in case you don't have much familiarity with him, he was one of the first rock and rollers, right, Dan?
0: That's right. I I think that we... We now know his name in sort of a negative light because of his relationship with uh, Tina Turner and the movie that came out about his very abusive attitude towards her and other people. Um, and quite frankly, just to make a note of this uh, for whatever historical purpose it might fill, um, when we at Nam r- recorded this interview with him, it was not um, without some people Uh, being very negative about it. Um, However, I felt it was very important to document his view on his role as a musician in the early days of rock and roll. Uh, Certainly in the era of uh, Pioneer, he is inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a result of the early uh, contributions that he made even prior to uh, getting together with Tina, which I think is very important. He p- was among the first to uh, record a, a Fender Stratocaster, for example. Uh, he was also uh, playing the piano on what is considered to be the very first rock and roll song, Rocket 88.
1: And I think uh, people have to remember that it's a job of a historian, whether they're a music historian or they teach college or write books or anything in between, is to document it all and to record it all so like dan said even though um a lot of ike turner's past is not ideal um it's important that we got a story so you know the music products industry and nam does owe dan a little head nod for for looking past all that and doing what's right for the hit for the profession so let's hear from ike
9: sam phillips and Dewey phillips was good friends Dewitt Phillips was the hottest disc jockey in the South. Music that we played back in those days was called race music. So white radio stations didn't play race music. So Sam Phillips got Dewey Phillips to play Rocket 88 on his show and all the white kids went flying to, the, uh, to Woodworth and all those kind of stores uh, uh, to, to buy the record uh, and, and, and that's when they found out that white kids would buy black records. So now, what Sam Phillips wanted to do was find him a white boy to sound like a black boy, and <laughs> and and uh, anyway, uh, 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 that's where Elvis came from, and and uh, uh, um, um, what's his name? I thought I said Joey Lewis. No, uh, oh, Jerry Lee. Jerry D. Lewis. That's right. where all these guys came from, playing this kind of stuff. Right. And Little Richard, like he admits, uh, and you know, you can't get Little Richard to admit nothing. He admits in my book that I wrote. Uh, taking back my name, he said he stole the intro off of Rocket 88. Uh, uh, That's the intro to, uh, uh, I think it's a good golly, Miss Molly.
0: Yeah,
9: yeah. He took it off note for note.
0: A very interesting character, to say the least. You can probably pick up on uh, some of the nuances of his personality just by listening to him.
1: Our next episode will be the conclusion of Sun Records, which will include topics such as the sun sound, recordings that happened at sun and the infamous million dollar quartet so make sure you check that out when we come back next time thanks for listening to the latest episode of the music history project if you have any episode suggestions or any comments please feel free to email us at library@nam.org.
2: and thank you to zach phillips for the writing and recording of our theme song